we're going to dive right in to Romans 1, 18 through 25. This is the second sermon in a row on the same passage. I don't think we've ever done this before, but we're going to lay this framework before we get into what is next. And this is what it says, starting in 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Another word for that unrighteousness of men is injustice. All ungodliness and injustice. Who by their unrighteousness say they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This is very crucial. What can be known about God is plain to them. It is very clear because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world ever since what we read about in Genesis 1, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So over the years, since we moved to Detroit in our old house, there are many of you who have been to our old house there, we've we've been under a lot of construction and we've had to deal with a lot of mice in our house. Uh, Just because walls are constantly getting torn off and we're rebuilding the whole thing, there's always a lot of entry points in which mice get into our home. It's really, actually when we first moved in, it was rats. We very quickly solved that, and we've not had a rat in our house uh, in at least three years now. Thank God. That was horrible. It was one of the worst moments of my life, seeing those rats uh, dry, run by the vent. The eight, that was bad. Um, anyway, so we've, we've dealt with that, but, but there's been a lot of mice, uh, just because of all the construction. Uh, and, and usually when we see one, we know right away, we have to take care of that. We can't just let that go. Mice are not one of those things uh, that you can just let go. But... A couple of weeks ago, I, I know I told you guys a couple of weeks ago, it got so cold in our house that we actually had to, we actually left because our, our heater wouldn't get the house above 52 degrees. So we had to leave uh, for a couple of days. And by the time we came back, uh, there was a lot of mice that, had, that were in there because uh, we weren't able to deal with them as we were gone. Uh, and it, I think it just felt worse than it's been in a very long time. And to be honest, guys, I've I'm just being honest with you, Don will back this up. It's very hard for me to even sleep at night because they're just always like scratching. They're like in our room and like you hear scratching and uh, we're, we're being aggressive with them. Uh, I know some people are probably against some of our methods, but like we have, we have uh, poison out that's, that's killing a lot of them. We have snap traps out that's taking care of a lot of it. But a lot of our, like this is kind of my night every night. It causes a lot of anxiety in me because I'll be laying in bed and I'll hear all this shuffling. Like I'll hear them like digging into a poison and then all of a sudden I'll hear a snap trap. Like, okay. And then I'll hear more shuffling. And the more grinding, and they'll be right back there again. They were this little fireplace, and they like live under there. And we just, we've killed so many under there. It's like a graveyard. It's where mice go to die. 
But uh, about a week ago, uh, one morning on the way to school, we were leaving for school and we were all getting our boots on and Brooklyn had left her boot like this. And she went and she put her boot on and she's like, oh, must be a sock in there or something. And thank God she did not stick her arm in there to get it out. She just shook it and a dead mouse fell out. Little six-year-old girl. And she screamed. She had never seen a mouse. We always tell them, oh, there's mice. And they always try to see them, but they're, they're, they're so fast. The kids had never seen them. And so she sees this and she just starts screaming. She's like so upset about it, so shooken up about it. And so we took him to school, and as I'm driving home, I'm just thinking about that poor little six-year-old girl who this is what her day began like. She began this day with a mouse in her shoe, in her boot. And I was like, man, this has just gone too far. It's gone too far. See, mice are small, but they're actually destructive. The, the smell of urine and feces uh, and the way they get into your food. And we're the kind of people who we don't believe in leaving butter in the fridge. We like butter to be soft, so we leave it on the counter and they just, they just help themselves to that. So we got to get like a new cover. Because uh, the, the way they destroy our butter is like a really emotional for us because butter is like a big deal for us. Um, and, you know, so like they, they, they destroy your property. They spread sickness. And then in the scratching and chewing and whatever other demonic activity they're doing in your house while you're trying to sleep, it's just not good. But yet it's very easy, especially like kind of when you first deal with a mouse, to look at one in your house, like if you've never dealt with it before, and be like, oh, that sucks that that's in there. But I don't want to like kill it. Or be like, I, I, or at least I don't want to go to the store and get the traps and then come back and have to set them up. And so what we think at first, a lot of us do, is maybe it'll let itself out. Maybe it let itself in and in that same way it came in, it can find its way out. But it doesn't leave. They never leave. Instead, it reproduces extremely quickly. And the longer that it takes to take care of the problem, the harder it becomes to solve the problem. And the more damage is done, and the more furniture, and the more food that you have to replace because of it. So last week, when we were talking, we talked about how in ancient Hebrew, in the ancient language, it was a pictorial language. And we showed you the word picture for honor. And we talked about how honor is the hand or the thing that opens the inside door. And we talked about how well, when we do not honor God, we shut a door so that God can't get to us. God can't, we shut it on, we essentially shut, we close the door on God to our lives. Now in a moment, I'm going to show you another word picture, and that is for the Hebrew word avon. It's the Hebrew word avon, it's the word for iniquity. And iniquity is an inward motivation, it is something that is or it is not, depending on the circumstances, actually acted on. But it is destructive all the same. And it causes you damage that maybe you don't even realize that it's causing you. Now the word avon comes from the word ava, which actually means to bend or to distort. It actually is used in the Bible to describe a road that's not straight. It just has a lot of turns and a lot of bends in it. So iniquity also, it's often, but not always, uh, talked about in the Bible alongside of words like transgression, which is a breaking of trust, or, or, or with the words like sin, 
like to miss the mark. It's, it's coupled with these different things, but it's not always done. Sometimes it's there by itself. But it seems to go a bit deeper than some of these outward things that we can very easily diagnose as this is a problem, like transgression or sin would be. Even in some instances, it's completely in your mind where nobody else sees it, and you may even be able to convince yourself that it is not affecting anyone else. You just sort of let it bend in your mind. So the Hebrew word picture that makes up Avon is the picture of an eye. It's the picture of a hook. And then the last one is the letter noon, which sometimes could mean a seed. Or some people interpret it to be the picture of a fish. But in the ancient uh, world, fish and seed both symbolize multiplication. So if I were designing this alphabet, I would actually make a mouse be the third one. Uh, that's what I would use. But I'm sure we can all use our imaginations as to what this third one could be. Um, but what some of the sages and the poets and the later rabbis would say when they looked at this ancient word picture is they would look at this word and they would say, what this is trying to tell you is that whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. And when you get into the world of multiplication, you realize how quickly something can go from seeming like, hey, this is not a big deal at all, to being absolutely out of control very, very, very quickly. From seeming to just be like a slight bend, to finding, wow, my gosh, I'm, a, I'm on the wrong road entirely. I'm going the wrong direction entirely. When your eye hooks to something, it determines, this is what I want. I want this thing. And as that multiplies, that turns into, well, this is what I need. I need this thing. And before long, it's, I can't live without this thing. I have to have this thing in my life. Things get out of control rather quickly, don't they? And that's a pretty accurate description, in my view, of what seems to be going on here in Romans 1. So what we're going to do today is we're actually going to spend the majority of our time talking through what's going on in Romans 1.25. I'm going to read just this verse to you again. It says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So before this, if you remember, it was described that they gave up the glory of God. We spent a whole week on that last week, the glory of God. And they thought, okay, this is the glory of God, but this is not as great as it seems. We can do better than this ourselves. And, you know, we talked about how Paul, when he's talking about glory, he actually quotes uh, the psalmist when the psalmist is taking us all the way back to the golden calf. We talked through that all last week. Uh, and the, the, the covenant that God made with Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. So this has been going on since Mount Sinai. And actually it's been going on since the garden. So from the beginning of time, we've been exchanging this glory. Now, let me try to just sort of explain this to you. See, God created a divine order for the world, and God is central in that perfect order. He needs to be the middle of it. But what humans have done forever is we've lived in such a way that we convince ourselves that we can achieve that which we are trying to achieve without God. So here's a, a visual of it, sort of. Like, this is the, the creature, right? Humanity, right? Really, humanity, we've come a long way. And actually, that kind of makes it more and more difficult, right? So you can simply go on Google, and you can see how far we've come. For instance, this is a picture of Shanghai. It's an aerial view of Shanghai. You may have seen this. This is a single image. It's a photograph of a city. 
taken with a camera with 24.9 billion pixels. Now, you can click on this picture and it will actually do this, you can actually do this aerial thing where you can zoom in on this picture. And you can zoom in all the way from the sky, the skyline, all the way down to the street, past all the people, to actually see the cars, to the point where you can actually literally read the license plate on this car. You can pan out a little bit from there and you can look at the people on the sidewalks and the families walking. You can see the, the guy with his little food cart just trying to make a living for himself. You, go, you, can, you can see the, the um, business people walking, the, the woman with her daughter pulling her daughter by the hand, trying to just keep her safe. You can pull out from there and you can go over here where there's going to be a bunch of businessmen. And they're all sitting having a meeting or whatever they're doing outside of an Apple store, right? And see, this is what we see in this image. But beyond this image, right, there's also people in this Apple store, right? People underground in this underground facility that we've formed, that we've created out of glass. It's like this, this craziness what's happening. And underneath there, of course, is a world of people who are very eager to spend their hard-earned money on something that man created, right? That's what it is, right? So in a world that is advancing as quickly as ours is, it's no wonder that less and less people acknowledge that they need God at all because look at what we can do on our own. And, but think about this, okay? As incredible as this technology is, all that this image is doing is capturing a fraction of the glory of something far bigger. 25 billion pixels is only enough to capture one image of one city when in fact there are Many cities. And even behind this, behind each and every one of these pixels, is a story of a God-breathed image bearer made up of millions and millions of cells working together to keep these people alive. With hearts that feel things. With eyes that see things. Eyes that can hook to things. With minds that have to navigate what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil, what's, what's going on, what's, can't make decisions. Behind these pixels are human souls navigating our broken world and just trying to make the best of it that they can. And behind each of these walls and each of these buildings are more people with more stories. Some people know God. Some people are far from God. But all of them are loved by God. All of them are being pursued by him. And as Romans says, all of these people have the ability to look up and see the depth of the world that he created. They have the ability to see that and something deep down in there, inside of our heart says, you know what, this is glory. This is beyond me. This is heavy. Now, the Bible begins with the story of God creating this beautiful, glorious place. And as we talked through last week, the culmination of creation was the creation of man and woman. We're going to focus more on that next week. But one thing that was significant was man and woman were given the task, the cultural mandate of caring for this beautiful place and spreading the glory of God throughout it as image bearers of God. So they lived among the perfection that God had created and they had nothing to worry about, okay? Adam and Eve had nothing to worry about. There was nothing to stress them out. There was nothing for them to fight about. Seems awesome, right? In Genesis 2.9, it tells us in the middle of that garden, there were two trees. 
There was the tree of life, which essentially was the, a, a tree in the middle of paradise bearing the fruit of eternal life, paradise with God forever. And then another tree, a forbidden tree, called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you have life and you have knowledge. And this is the setting for the first exchange. God tells Adam and Eve, you can have anything that you want. It's all yours besides this one tree, tree, the fruit of one tree is all I don't want you to eat. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A tree that bore fruit that produced just that. It produced knowledge. It gave humans the ability to determine good and evil. Before they ate of the fruit, they didn't have to worry about any of that. They just got to live in God's perfect creation, in his perfect world. They got to live there. They didn't have to worry. But when the serpent deceived them, what it did it with was it did it with the promise that if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. In that, you will know good and evil. You'll have to navigate good and evil. You can figure that out. Now, that was actually true. That was not a lie. We, we know that because when, when we get to Genesis 3.22, we get God saying, they're like us now. They, they, can, they, navigate, they, can, they understand good and evil now. They're like us in that way. See, the lie was not that we would gain knowledge. The lie was that we needed the knowledge. The lie was that the glory of God and everything that God gave them was not enough for them. But what it opened them up for was it opened them up for eyes. They now had eyes that see the bad in themselves and they see the bad in other people. Because of what this opened up. They see it in each other. It opened them up to look at something that God created as good. And now they had to determine, is that good? Is that thing good? They lived in a world previously in which God navigated good and evil for them. He kept evil far from them. But they decided that they wanted to navigate good and evil on their own. Which, as you begin to determine good and evil on your own, and you begin to determine what is good and what is not good, it becomes very easy, doesn't it, to make all sorts of judgments against others who are doing things that you deem not good. So what God has to do in the garden, if you, you have to read this very closely, and I wish I could spend like an hour on this one concept I can't right now, but what God has to do in the garden he has to, is he has to kick them out. And he has to put an angel around the tree of life literally surrounding the entire thing with a sword because they can't, so that they don't reach out and touch the tree of life, okay? See, they, see even when you, when you eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, suddenly you have something that cannot be coupled with life and life forever in this world. So God has to make sure, hey, because they have knowledge, now they have to not eat that fruit. I was reading an old sermon transcript from uh, Timothy Keller from like 20 years ago. And I want to read just one thing he says in this about the tree of life, just so you can kind of understand what was at play, what was contrasting here in the garden. He says, what's the tree of life? The tree of life is to have that in its fullness, to have all the glory, like we talked about last week, to have all the greatness of God. Look at the scale on which the Bible says that you are made, right? Look at every detail of who you are and what God created. Look at the grandeur. Look at how huge you might say your tanks are. Look at what enormous stuff it's going to take to fulfill it, right? There's something in us that can only be fulfilled by the glory of God and we try to fill it another way. And that's what the tree of life is, he says. So what God is saying when he says they must not be allowed to reach out, what is he saying? 
Here's what it means. It means they lost God. But watch this. He says, if you're going to be your own God, you're going to lose God. So human life was cut short by its eagerness to do that, to be the ones that determine right from wrong, a role that was only meant for God. And something, quite frankly, to this day, that it's one of the biggest struggles that we face as humans, right? We, we all say, well, only God can judge me, right? And, and that's true. Even the Bible says that God is the judge. Yet man has tried to take the role of judge, and they've heaped it both onto others and onto themselves and how they determine how they will and will not act. And it's always been like that since this moment. And I've said this before to you, but um, the name Adam literally means humanity, okay? So literally, Adam represented us in this moment. So we, it's easy to be like, dude, what a stupid decision. Why would he eat the one thing that he couldn't eat? But we would do the exact same thing. Because the truth is, we all choose to be our own gods. We do it now. They did it then. We do it every single day. So in the garden, they worshiped the creature. They gave into that rather than the creator. Now, I need you guys, I know that we're kind of in a, a, a few-part series through this exchange, and I need you to hold this one for next week. And everything we just said, it's very important to note the way that the fall of man has actually instigated a world in which people view one another through a lens that says there's something wrong with this person. Okay, we have to understand that and where that comes from. And the problem with that is ultimately that most of us have formed worldviews that point to other people being sinful, but we still ourselves view ourselves as righteous. And though Paul on this list, he'll get very specific to call out specific things that are coming up, the bigger point when it comes to the sin we're going to talk about in this passage is that we are all in fact guilty. We're all guilty. Last week we talked about this. We can't throw stones at people who sin in different ways than we do. But we also can't tell people that the parts of their lives that aren't as they should be are as they should be. We shouldn't tell people that they're bringing glory to God by something that is so clearly in the Bible describing this is not bringing glory to God. God wants people who will come to him knowing, I need you, God. I can't do this thing without you. I'm lost without you. That's what the first beatitude means. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want to know how to get heaven, how to get the kingdom of heaven? You come to Jesus realizing I am spiritually bankrupt and on my own, I will never get there. That's what that means. I'm without hope if Jesus doesn't step in. The gospel is for the broken, the people who know, you know what, I'm, I'm not who I should be. But the problem is, and this is what Paul's addressing here, is a lot of people have convinced themselves, I am as I should be. I'm as I should be. But this is what happens when you convince yourself that you are as you should be. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. So it says God gave them up. He's saying if you're willing to trade the infinite glory of an almighty God for something in this world that is so clearly fleeting that will so clearly be crushed in an instant. God's saying, dude, that breaks my heart. But you're human and you have a will and it's all of your, you're allowed to do that. You are allowed to do that to me if you want to. You're giving up everything for nothing, but you're allowed to do that. 
if that's your choice. He says, if that's what you choose, I will step back. So he gave them up to the lusts of their heart. Now, this word lust is the word epithumeo. Epithumeo. Now, epithumeo is actually a combination of two words, epa, which means in, and thumos, which actually means the mind. So if you get these two words and you look at them like as in separate words, you'd get the phrase in the mind. Okay? But when you actually combine them as one word, the word epithumeo literally means to set your heart upon. So lust is when your heart determines that it has to have something that you would have to cross a line in order to have. See, we tend to limit it to sex, and it definitely is that, but it definitely means more than just that. Like, what happened in the garden was absolutely lust. Adam and Eve had lust. They set their heart upon something, and the only way for them to get that thing was they had to cross the only line that God laid for them. They set their heart upon it, and they went after it. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about lust, and he talks about it here in a sexual way, but when he does it, he paints a picture unlike anything that the world had heard of at this time. In those days, everybody knows you can't commit sexual immorality. You can't commit adultery. You could not transgress breaking the trust of your community, breaking the trust of your spouse. That was absolutely forbidden. Everybody knows you have to be faithful to the person you're married to. You could literally be killed for adultery. It was a law. It was very, very rarely enforced, but it was the law of the land. But in those days, people had no problem looking. They had no problem with lust. They had no problem with an inward bending of iniquity as long as they didn't act on it. But then Jesus comes along, and in one of the most bold things you ever get from him, he says, you know what? If you even think it, if you even look at a woman with lust in your eyes for her with a lustful intent, he says, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Why? Because whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. And whatever you allow to reproduce inside of you, it will one day find its way out of you. Inward motivations turn into outward actions that break trust with others and always leave you empty. It can't stay in there forever. Proverbs 4, 23 says this. It says, above all else, you have to guard your heart. Because everything that you do flows from it. See, once something has lodged in your heart, that will start to flow out of you. It will overflow. But here is kind of a human problem with that. That we got to kind of figure out. See, the Bible actually tells us in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all else. So more than anything else that we know about the heart, we know this thing is deceitful. And whatever that deceitful heart can convince you of will eventually flow out of you. But what does it mean to be deceitful, right? It means your heart is trying to trick you. It is literally trying to convince you of something that is not right. So God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, right? They're tricked. So Romans 1.25 it really is this kind of culminating moment in this section when Paul, Paul says people gave up the truth about God for a lie, right? A lie that they were tricked into believing. Something tricked them. Something got a hold of their hearts and they decided, I'm going to give up truth for this lie. And when that happened, God allowed them to reject him. Because this could not be more relevant 
to us today. Watch this process. Think about this, okay? Whatever begins in your mind, right? It makes its, what, what begins with your eye, sorry, whatever begins with your eye, whatever your eye hooks to multiplies, you see something, and then it connects to your mind, right? And then it'll eventually make its way into your heart. But if we give into this notion that we should follow our hearts, which is quite frankly, this bill of goods that the world always tries to sell people, you gotta follow your heart, you gotta follow your heart. But if you're following your heart, you're most likely following a lie. Because by nature, our hearts lie to us. But lies tend to begin as subtle bends. Ava. Subtle bends, and they slowly turn us into someone that we never thought that we would be. And suddenly, if you were five years ago to now, you're looking like, how did I get, how did I get here? But, but if you hook to a lie, that lie will only multiply in your life. Yeah, Ephesians 4, it talks about how, it talks about the heart as something that can actually become callous, Right? I think about when I learned guitar, many of you play guitar. When you learn to play the guitar, when you first start playing it, it's very hard on your fingers to push the strings in, especially if it's like not a really well-adjusted, good action guitar. You're trying to play this thing, and then you're like, wow, this hurts a lot. Then you have to take a break, and then you put it back on again, and you put your fingers on it, and it hurts a little bit less, and a little bit less, and a little bit less as the calluses build up on your fingertips. And then before long, you don't feel it anymore. You've persisted through the pain or through the thing that doesn't feel natural, and then before long, it does feel natural. You don't feel it at all anymore. It's like that with sin. The more we do it, the easier it becomes. And the thing that at one point maybe caused you a certain level of conviction, as, it, as that thing multiplies, it's only going to feel more and more and more acceptable. Because as things multiply, the mindset, again, it becomes, well, I have to have that thing. If that's just something I want. I have to have it. And the easiest way to justify something that you maybe know is not right is to first convince yourself, I, I deserve this thing. Like, this is, what, this is what I deserve. And then second of all, it's to convince yourself, dude, it would actually be wrong for me to not have this thing. You see where that, how we get there? But it didn't start there. It started in your heart. It started with your eye hooking to something. But at the root of this entire thing is an exchange. It's you saying to God, God, I think I want this thing instead. Or this is what makes me feel good, so who cares what the Bible says? And who cares what the Holy Spirit tells me? It's an exchange. We give up the creator for that which we've created. And the reason that this is so offensive to God is because God wants to give you his glory. He wants to give you his glory. He wants his glory to fill the earth. It's an absolutely crazy exchange. Think about that. It's like trading a billion dollars for a quarter because you want to hold a physical metal piece in your hand and you think, oh, this seems like it's going to last longer. Like, it's, it doesn't make any sense at all. Nobody in their right mind would do that. But what does Romans say next? In, in, in Romans 1.28, what it says is, because they chose to exchange, God gave them up to a debased mind, is the way that he puts it. Now, in English, if something is debased, what it means is that its value has been reduced. But the Greek word that Paul uses here literally just means it's worthless. It's worthless. When they don't honor God, and remember what honor is, honor is giving weight. Weight is how you measure value in that day. When you don't give God his worth, and you don't give him the weight he deserves, he'll give you over and let you have a mind that has no glory, that has no value 
to the kingdom. Guys, when it says that God gave them up, we must not read it as God just throwing up his hands in the air and literally just giving up on people. In life, we all know there are times when there's only so much that can be done. As a parent, I can coach my kids, I can do my very best to discipline my kids, but ultimately there's going to come a day when my children are going to have to decide for themselves the life that they want to lead, and I will be powerless, powerless to dictate their decisions, no matter how much I gave to them or invested in them throughout their years of growing up. And when God gives you everything, but then you exchange that for nothing, it's not God being mean, it's you and I just being stupid. That's literally what it is. Another translation says this. It says, okay, God allowed sin to run its course. Sometimes God lets sin run its course in our lives. But the thing that's so devastating to me, as I, as I just look back, I look at the church, I look at our city, I look at the community, is I realize, and, and I, I know we're not the only culture that's done this, I know that history repeats itself over and over again, but when I look at our culture, culture as a whole has made this exchange. We've made this exchange. It really has shifted. It's been really dark for a really long time. And we've always believed this, guys, and we still do. The church is the hope of the world. We need to rally together. We need to love on people. But it is in the church, too. It's in the pews, too. It is amongst us just as much as it is out there. Hopefully not just as much, but it exists here, too. In Ephesians 4, right, when Paul, he's talking to the church in Ephesus, and he talks about our callous hearts. He's talking about how people's hearts get hardened. He says, how do you take on that new self? How do you lose the calluses? And the answer he comes up to is, well, we got to remember how we learned Christ. He's like, hey, this is what you're doing. And he says, that's not how you learn Christ. No, that's not it at all. That's not, how did you learn him? You You learned Christ by being given the truth. But that truth was coupled with love. And the communities that should follow that truth coupled with love should be just like that. Like we, we, we have the knowledge of good and evil. We have that now, right? We have our worldviews. Now it's time to sort this out in community with one another so that we can take that knowledge and we can direct it toward accountability rather than condemnation. So we can direct it toward loving each other more where we are, meeting people where we are, but always submitting to the fact that none of us are as we should be. None of us. Always submitting to the fact that we need Christ to continue to work and move in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our marriages, in our churches. I was listening to a, a pastor uh, give a talk, a pastor in Australia, his name is Mark Sayers, and he was giving this, this talk, uh, listening to this this week, and he was describing this moment that he had on stage, and he was, he was preaching uh, to his church. He pastors a church in Melbourne, it's called Red Church, and he was, he's pastoring, he's speaking to his church, and Mark Sayers is an expert on culture, okay? He's an expert on church culture, he's an expert on culture, he can tell you the exact process as to how our world uh, got where it got, all the things that it went through here to here to here to here to bring us to this place. He can tell you that, right? And so he, he's, he, 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 he's, he can explain the mindsets as a whole that have led to where we currently are. And as he was preaching that day a couple of years ago, uh, he said that he had what he called a crisis. 
a crisis. And uh, he had this crisis on stage. And as he's, as he's sort of walking through this, uh, he, he looked out and he's, he's preaching a sermon and having nothing to do with the sermon at all that he's preaching, he started thinking about something totally different. And he looked out on his congregation and on his church and he was so overwhelmed by the challenge of our culture knowing exactly how we got there, but not having a clue how to fix it. And what he went on to describe in this, in this talk he did, was he, it couldn't be a better description of where the Western church is at this moment in history. He explained how Christians have kind of adopted this very scary do-it-yourself mindset, in which uh, what, you may go to church, you love the pastor, you love the teaching, you love the worship, but you kind of have other areas of your life. The example he gave was sexuality, where he's like, well, I'm going to just kind of make this part up myself. I'm going to follow you on this part, but I'm going to make this part up myself. Or I don't like this part. It doesn't quite fit with the life that I've created or that I want to create. It doesn't quite fit with the worldview that I've formed. This is what makes most sense to me. So I'm going to take the first part, but I'll leave out the second. Right? It kind of like when Romans was written, we didn't have Google aerial views that showed us all the details of the world, right? We didn't have that. We progressed beyond the book. It's kind of what some people would say. So we'll take the parts that fit and we'll make up the rules for the parts that don't. And we think that that thinking is harmless, but that thinking is destructive. It might be like a little, bit, like a little mouse and he's in your house and you think, oh, he'll probably just he'll leave and he'll, it will stay this way. No, it will, it will reproduce. It will multiply. And it will lead to more and more compromising, which will ultimately lead to destruction. So this pastor, he's on stage. And he's looking out and he's so overwhelmed by how powerless he is to turn around culture. Just like how powerless I am, once my kids get older, they gotta make their own decisions, I'm gonna be powerless in that arena. He's sitting there, he's like, I don't know how I can do anything to make this any better. And he said a really, really dangerous question came to his mind, and I'm gonna share it with you in a second. And I'm hoping that in this message, you, this helps you understand his question. Because when God gives someone over, and this is what we've been talking through, right? When God gives us over to something, when he lets sin run its course, it's not so that we will be destroyed by sin. It's not so our lives will just diminish, fall apart, and we'll die. It's so that we will finally get to the bottom where we finally get to a place where we can approach Jesus poor in spirit, realizing I've seen the bottom. I've seen myself at my worst. I know I can't do this on my own. Jesus, I need you. It's, it's, that's why a lot of people, I think, who come to Jesus on the bottom, they cling to him the tightest. Because they realize, I'm not going back to that life, man. That was, that was not the best life for me. That was horrible. So, the, so we know that in conjunction to our own lives. But the question that Mark uh, had come into his mind, literally he's preaching a different message, nothing about this at all, but he's so bombarded by this question. He felt he heard God asking this question. What if at this moment, I want to renew the church? What if I had to let it get so bad, right? To the point where, and, and think about this, think about our culture. Quite frankly, uh, I'm not talking about myself, but the preaching in our culture, way better than it used to be. Way better. The worship, way better than it used to be. But our churches are still shrinking. People are still not coming. We're getting less and less people say that they're Christians. And, he, and what he's saying is, what if we have to get to a place where the best preaching is not going to work? Worship, 
could be better than culture. It could, it'll keep up with culture. Maybe it'll even be better than culture. And we've done that in our churches, and it's still not going to work. Then he said this. He says, renewals happen when people get to the end of themselves. And there's nothing to rely on except the contending on your knees for God's presence to move. You know, we all have areas in our lives in which we believe that we should allow ourselves, we should be allowed to live a certain way, we should be allowed to do things a certain way. And often whether we admit it or we don't, that way is totally void of God. And we think that God doesn't notice because sometimes he lets it run its course in our lives. Sometimes he lets it run its course in our culture or in our churches. But it breaks his heart because he loves you. He loves your family. He loves your kids. He loves his church. He wants to renew it just like he wants to renew every part of your life. And I want to encourage you guys that in the same way that we all feel the result of that first exchange, we all reap the benefits of a better exchange. One in which Jesus exchanged all that he has and all that he is for all that we've done. He took our sin upon his sinless life and he exchanged his life for our life. And we, we're going to get more into this when we get into Romans 5. Um, but what it says in Romans 5 is that they, Paul talks about how sin entered the world through one man, through Adam, but how that sin was dealt with through another man, through Jesus. And especially when I think about iniquity, I always think about Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. It, it paints this incredible description of what Jesus did for us in chapter 53. It says this, it says, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, right? His skin, it was literally broken through, like literally something came, went through him, external. He had bleeding, he poured out for our transgressions, right? For the times that we've broken trust with one another, he is, our, his skin was broken for all the times we committed an outward action that had an outward effect. He paid a visible outward price for that thing, the things that we've allowed to manifest into realities in our lives. But then it says this. It says, but he was bruised for our iniquities, for the inward bending, for the inward motivations. You see, a bruise, of course, is something under your skin. It is an internal bleeding on the top of your, right, right before your skin. So literally what that is saying is that for the times that your path just started to bend and twist, for the times that your inward motivations maybe led you down a path that you shouldn't have went down on, he said he paid an inward price. He carried that for you. It says he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows. It says he was chastised so that we could experience peace, and it says by his stripes we are healed. Man, that's some powerful stuff. That's what Jesus did for you. It's easy to condemn yourself. It's easy to condemn others, but you got to remember Jesus did this for everyone. And I really believe that a renewal is coming to our world. A spiritual waking up is coming to our world. 
and you all know this, we always say our church exists for people who maybe aren't here yet, but quite frankly, if a renewal is coming and if God wants to renew people, it needs to start right here. There's no reason that it shouldn't start right here. If God's looking for people, like we said last week, who will stand in the gap on behalf of the city so that he doesn't have to destroy it, why would that not start here? If God's looking for people who will get on their knees and who will repent, not only on behalf of themselves, but also on behalf of the broken world that we all contributed to creating, man, he should look no further than this place. He should look no further than you and I. And I want you to just leave this place today with this thought. And we're going to, in a minute, take communion and we're going to pray. But think about this. There was a better exchange So why is it that we all live our lives so bound to the first one?